everybody. Welcome back to STEM Fatal, your women in science history podcast. I'm <laughs> okay, sorry. I'm Dr. Emma Dilemma coming at you hot in 2020. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm Dr. Emlyn Gremlin, not eating after right. midnight. Mm-hmm. Great. And it's a new year. And this is you know, we've been on hiatus for a little yeah, bit because, hey, we're all we're busy. We all are allowed. We're allowed. Yeah, this is a f- this is a free podcast. <laughs> we don't get paid to do this. You don't own us. We have to prioritize. Yes. <laughs> um, but yeah, we just haven't had time to to both get together and record. And it's our fifty episode fiftieth episode. Ooh. So we wanted to make it super special mm-hmm. um, and record a podcast about our very, very awesome lady that we'll be talking about today. So we just decided to to wait until we could really do it and do it well. And is it going to be perfect? No. <laughs> is it ever? <laughs> but, but um, you know, we're back now and hopefully we'll be able to publish things every other week like usual from now on but you never know well <laughs> i'll be on an island for a year. month we'll see how that goes <laughs> oh yeah that's true forgot about that <laughs> but yeah so the way this one's gonna work because so the woman that we're talking about today is drum roll i can't roll my r's <laughs> dr marie curie who obviously, having, yeah. spoiler alert, two Nobel Prizes, we kind of had to split up. We just, So we're splitting up her life, and Emma's doing some of it, and I'm doing some of it. Um, so it's a little more collaborative this time. Yeah, I mean, she is probably the most mm-hmm. famous female scientist in the world, I would yeah. say, um, because of her Nobel Prizes and kind of being... And she was the first woman to win. And I mean, we'll get into it, but, um, yeah, we really just, I don't know. It was like, we both want to cover her. So we might as well just split mm-hmm. it up. Um, it's a little intimidating to do it one, just one of us. Yeah. But it's kind of funny. T- <laughs> so we'll be alternating, but I didn't read about like your parts. No, I didn't read about your parts either. So <laughs> I don't. I so I think it'll be funny because it'll be like I'm talking about one part of her life and then not a whole segment and then <laughs> another segment. I was like, I hope this is in the same context as, or I hope Emlyn brings this up or that, or we'll we'll just have to see. Mm, we'll but see how it yeah, goes. I think it'll hopefully be all the puzzle pieces will fit together. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. So yeah, wait, I didn't like start with any questions because you know who I'm talking about today and I know who you're talking it's about true. today. It's true. It's hard to um we don't need a question this <laughs> I week. I was trying to think yeah, we don't need a question this week. 
Um, so let's just get started. Let's do it. I'm ready. I want to know about the things I don't know about. Oh, wait, I'm starting. Yeah. <laughs> I forgot. Otherwise, we've okay. done this very badly. All right. I know. Oh, my God. What if we had both Research. accidentally written the same parts? <laughs> that would be bad. I mean, we talked about it and then... I was like, wait, I need to double check with Emlyn about five times before I start doing anything <laughs> to make sure I'm not doing the same parts as she is. Okay. Um, yeah, so let's get started with the day that Marie Curie was born. Marie, who as a child was called Manya Skladowska, was born in Warsaw, Poland on November 7th, 1867. So, you know... What's that? 150 years ago? I guess it's um, 2020. 153-ish. I know. I keep forgetting, yeah, uh, what year it is. So she was born in Poland during a time when Russia occupied Warsaw specifically mm. and other parts of Poland. But, you know, not the whole country. I don't remember the details of Russian-Poland tensions, but at the time, <laughs> Russia at least occupied Poland. Um, both of her parents were Polish. They were descended from small landowners outside of Warsaw, and they were both teachers. So at the time of Marie's birth, her father was a professor in math and physics and held what was considered the highest position at a boys' school that any Polish person could because Russian mm. people had to be the most highest person at the gotcha. school. You know, I don't know what any of these titles are, but he was the like second highest position at the school. Makes sense. Or something. So the family lived on that school campus. And let's see. And until Marie's birth, her mother ran a small school for, for girls but after Marie's birth, not only did her mom feel overwhelmed working and raising five children, uh -huh. so Marie was the fifth of five, yeah. um, but her mother uh, began to grow ill from tuberculosis mm. and was actually sick with tuberculosis for most of Marie's childhood. Oh, that's rough. Yeah. And because her father could not sufficiently hide his pro-Polish sentiments, he was actually demoted multiple times at the school. Mm. And so the family began to take in students that needed boarding or housing for to make some extra money. Okay. This was fine until one of Marie's sisters caught typhus from one of the students and died when Marie was eight. Oh, God. And then... <laughs> I know. So this is kind of a I'm just going to kind of speed through it because it's sad. Okay. Um, and then when when Marie was 10, her mother died from tuberculosis. Mm -hmm. And around the same time, <laughs> this is all sad, um, people around her, like her siblings' friends, yeah, her siblings, her older siblings' friends were being executed occasionally if they spoke too strongly against the Russian Tsar. Ugh. So it was a very... Yeah, anyway, her early childhood was really dramatic mm -hmm. and shaped her personality in many ways. First, it promoted a really great feeling of Polish pride and nationality that would never leave her, even though she spends most of her life in France, mm -hmm. which we'll get to later. 
And it also made her um, very non-religious. So even though her parents were uh, Catholic, she, from an early age, basically stated she did not believe in God. And like, this is just some another part of her personality that would shape her her career and personal life a bit later. But there was some some good things. So she was able to receive a really good education because both her parents valued education yeah. as teachers. This wasn't always easy, but at the very least, she had access to schooling in her early years, and her father maintained a fairly academic home, reading the children classics, poems, etc. And because he was a science teacher, he had a bunch of like science equipment around the house, nice. like a precision barometer and a glass case that was filled with different contraptions and devices that he used in teaching. Mm-hmm. Which she she found all this stuff fascinating and would like play with them or look at them. However, once she reached more advanced education, it was harder to get get schooling because the Russian government had banned Polish women from obtaining higher degrees. Of course. So, yeah. So Marie and her sister Branya began attending a secret night school for women that was called. um, I don't know what the word in Polish is, but it sort of translates in English to floating university or flying university. Okay. Because it was held in a different place every night to avoid detection. That's when you have to work that hard to get an education. It's just amazing. Yeah. I mean, it's really incredible that they bothered, you know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) that they were like that driven to be educated. Yeah, but I'm sure they knew it was their only way to, like, eventually get out yep. of the situation they were in, For you sure. know? Um, yeah, and so in this school, she studied numerous subjects, including chemistry and physics, but she also studied, uh, like, forbidden subjects, Ooh. which were, at the time, Polish history and culture. Okay. God. <laughs> Not, like, sex ed. <laughs> I mean, maybe they studied sex ed. I don't know what was else was forbidden, uh-huh. but they were forbidden from studying Polish history in normal classes. <laughs> that's crazy. I mean, that's kind of a common thing when you're trying to usurp a country or a culture, right. but it's still awful. Yeah, exactly. So this schooling, however, was not like as rigorous as attending a university because they're basically just teaching themselves. Mm -hmm. And so when Marie was 16, she and her older sister, Branya decided that they would pursue higher degrees abroad. Of course, that meant getting money to go study abroad, which they didn't have. And so they kind of made a pact where Marie, since Branya was older and sort of the age to start university, they decided that Marie would work in Poland for a while to pay for Branya to attend medical school mm. in Paris. And then once Branya was done, they would switch and Branya would pay for Marie to come out and study once she had made some money. Gotcha. And so they did, yeah, so they did this it, and it worked. So Marie, 
got a job as a private tutor, sending money to Branya, and then eventually moved in with the family and worked as their governess, mm-hmm. which I don't really know what that means. I think it's like you kind of take care of the house slash kids. It's like the sound of music that she was the governess. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think okay. it just means a governess is but just like, like the person who... I think it's the same thing as the au pair, but maybe it's like more of a okay. also in charge of schooling. I think yeah. a governess is like okay, yeah, an au pair plus right. also the teacher. I'm making this up. Yeah, the one thing that confused. I mean, they must have just had a bunch of kids, like some younger ones and some older ones, because she had a brief engagement to one of the family's sons who like oh didn't even live there. Oh my, yeah. <laughs> So their son is Kazimierz Zorowski, who would actually go on to become a famous mathematician. But um, the family did not, they sort of originally were like, yeah, it's okay, they're falling in love, whatever. But then once he proposed to her, they were like, no, she's too poor, you can't marry her. They didn't know that she would be like, Marie Curie, the famous, yeah, most famous. I'm sure, they were scientist. kicking themselves later. I know. So their engagement didn't, you know, didn't last mm-hmm. very long. But she still stayed on as a governess, and in her free time, she would read books, becoming more and more interested in chemistry. But she w- was sad that she couldn't do experiments of her own, like she didn't have a lab. So. She eventually moved home and started taking lessons on lab techniques in a school that her cousin secretly ran. And her cousin was like a chemist who had been training with Dmitry Mendeleev, who was the guy who like formulated the periodic table of elements, oh, okay. uh-huh. which is kind of crazy. Yeah. yeah. And so she would spend her nights working in the lab with her cousin, but often by herself And she just had a lot of fun. Like, it was really hard, and she failed a lot, but she was still learning what lab work was like for the first time. Mm -hmm. And she loved it. And so once her father and Branya and herself had had made enough money for her to go to school, um, she moved to Paris in 1891 to officially continue her studies. And I think this is where your is it my turn story part starts. Yeah. All right. <laughs> right. Yeah. No. Okay. No, we're good. We're good. Okay. Cool. Awesome. All right. So, Manya. Now we know her as yeah. Marie. Manya mm-hmm. enrolled in the Sorbonne, which is the University of Paris, in the fall of eighteen ninety one, and began going as Marie. She immediately moved in with her sister, Branya and her sister's husband in the outskirts of Paris. While it was better than nothing, the commute to school was one hour by horse-drawn bus each way. Oh, oh my gosh. And so Marie was... That's insane. Yeah. It's a long time. And it's got to be a bumpy ride, too. Yeah. So Marie right. was frustrated by oh the gosh. the wasted time, the wasted money on travel, and mm-hmm. I would imagine it probably didn't smell super great. So all of that <laughs> combined kind of urged her to maybe think about not living with her sister anymore. 
Yeah, totally. Additionally, living with her sister meant that she would be in the heart of the active exile community in Paris, so the the Polish exile community. Oh, And right. her father mm-hmm. warned her that this could jeopardize her career prospects back in Poland if she ever wanted to come back. Uh, and even mm-hmm. could jeopardize the lives of her relatives living at home. And I'm not sure really oh. more specifics of why he thought that. Maybe it's just a lot of the exiles, there was a lot of bad blood between them and the Russians in Poland. And so associating with them was kind of a, a bad strategy. Yeah, that's interesting. Okay. But regardless, so the combination of kind of her father's warnings and... It taking so long to actually get to the Sorbonne. Uh, Marie, within a few months, she moved into the Latin Quarter of Paris, which is like the artsy student neighborhood. Oh, okay. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah. There she could like go on dates and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It's like right in the heart of Paris also, which is probably just more Uh fun. Yeah. For a a young gal like herself. Indeed. Just move into Paris. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So her quarters in Paris were pretty meager. Some stories say that she wore every piece of clothing she owned in the winter to keep warm at night, which is oh my god, <laughs> kind of re- reminiscent That's of intense a Friends episode where Joey puts on all of Chandler's clothes. <laughs> if you've seen that, <laughs> yeah, but no underwear. But no underwear. <laughs> I, I can't say much about that in terms of Marie, but that's um, <laughs> not important. Yeah. So <laughs> no, irrelevant. <laughs> and some of the stories about this time suggest that she even fainted from hunger because she was too absorbed in her work to remember to eat food. And this could be kind of whoa, some exaggeration or hyperbole. But nevertheless, that gives you a sense of kind of her living situation and how devoted she was to learning mm-hmm. at that time. Yeah. So her education in Poland, as you might imagine because it was so hodgepodge and secret, uh, it wasn't really sufficient to prepare her for the Sorbonne. And so she initially was really behind, especially in math and science when she got there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Could you tell like how many other women were studying the same subjects or not? I don't know that. I don't think it was probably very many, but it didn't, from what I was looking at, it didn't really say. Mm-hmm. Okay. I couldn't really get that impression from anything mm-hmm. either, so I wasn't sure. Anyway, yeah. Yeah. So, in her, like, autobiography, one of her autobiographies, Marie said about kind of this time, she said, quote, in the evening I worked in my room, sometimes very late into the night. All that I saw and learned that was new delighted me it was like a new world opening to me the world of science which i was at last permitted to know in all liberty so she was having a a gale time she was having the time of her life even though she was cold and wearing everything she owned (laughs) yeah but she's like she just loves science so much from what i could tell Yeah. yeah yeah so her diligence trying to catch up really paid off and she was at the top of her class for it said master's degree but i think it might have might have been her bachelor's i'm not positive okay yeah but she kind of graduated at the top of her class in physics in 1983 and with aid wow. of a scholarship Wait, 
1893. In 1893. <laughs> 1893. Okay. okay. I was like, wait a second. <laughs> In 1893. <laughs> when she was 100 years old. She was so old. It she took finally her so graduated. Yeah. So she, uh, with the aid of a scholarship that was given for outstanding Polish students, she was able to undertake and complete a second degree in mathematics the following year. And then for that degree, wow. she graduated second in her class. Wow. Oh, only second. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Not very good. No. <laughs> Got to step it up. She's stupid. <laughs> so before completing this second math or completing this math degree, she was commissioned by the Society for the Encouragement of National Industry. I don't know what that means. <laughs> uh, but she was... Yeah. Commissioned to investigate the relationship between magnetic properties of different types of steel and their chemical composition. Oh, wow. And so in order to do this work, she needed to find a lab. So they, they like, funded her to do this project but didn't provide her with a lab Mm -hmm. to do it, which I think is kind of the theme of her life, actually. Yeah, it seems like a lot of her life is in <laughs> just, search of a good lab. Just finding any lab space. <laughs> so she mentioned this need to find a lab space to a Polish phys- mm-hmm. uh, physicist she knew, and he suggested that she talk to this colleague of his named Pierre Curie. So Ooh, I wonder if they're going to get along. <laughs> <laughs> so Pierre Curie was the laboratory chief at the Municipal School of Industrial Physics and Chemistry in Paris, and he'd already done some pioneering research on magnetism. So he was about 10 years older than mm-hmm. Marie. So he's a little further in his career. Mm-hmm. And this chance meeting would not only change Marie's life, but would also change the course of science. <laughs> I know. It's true. It's true. It's true. It's true. So... Although Pierre's space, his lab space, was seriously lacking, she was able to find some rudimentary lab space there and began investigating these magnetic properties of steel. Quickly, Pierre and Marie's working relationship turned into a romantic one. Yeah. I mean, they're both, like, pretty good-looking. Yeah. Yeah. No, he's got some nice cheekbones. Like... I saw a picture of Pierre. I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> like, Ooh, la la. Nobel Prize winners should not be allowed to also be very handsome. No, it seems like some type of crime. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Anyway. Yes. We'll, we'll allow it. So. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. Pierre had essentially given up on love. Oh. After his close companion had died 15 years oh, previously. So he pretty much just, you know, put his head in the sand and like, let's right. just work. But since then, uh, he ha- hadn't found any woman who shared his passion for science until yep. Marie. There she was. And so in Marie, he found an intellectual equal who was also equally devoted to science. And he was like, yes, Amazing. you and me. Let's They're do so this. sweet together. And Marie says about this time, quote, Soon he caught the habit of speaking to me of his dream of an existence consecrated entirely to scientific research, and he asked me to share that life. It was not, however, easy for me to make such a decision, for it meant separation from my country and my family. So she was a little torn up about it. And this was kind of around the time that she finished her math degree, 
Right. And then she returned to Poland for a short period of time. And he, like, I mean, he literally just wanted, like, to do nothing but science, right? Like, <laughs> yeah, no with fun. Her. Like, all science with her. <laughs> it's pretty intense. Yes. Yeah. yeah. It was very, it's very, yeah, very intense. Anyway. But maybe if, if science is fun, then, you know. Right. What You don't need other fun, maybe. <laughs> you don't I need do. other fun. Some people don't. <laughs> I don't know about that. So she, she went back to Poland, mm. and she was unsure what her next steps were going to be and whether or not she wanted to even return to right. Paris. But Pierre sent letters to her convincing her to return to Paris and urging her to pursue a doctorate degree. Wow. And so she returned, and she convinced Pierre that he also should get his doctorate because although he was making scientific discoveries for 15 years and he was a pretty accomplished scientist, he had never actually completed his doctorate. And so she started the Sorbonne for her PhD and he quickly kind of wrote up his work that he had done in the past, you know, 10 or 15 years and then quickly received a PhD in 1985. I wish you could still get PhDs like that, like just working a while and then like kind of a post-hoc PhD. You can only if it's like um an honorary, right? Mm-hmm. right? Like if you do some really cool stuff, places will give yeah, you an honorary. Yeah, they'll just give you but... one. That's true. Yeah, yeah, that's true. All right. In July 1895, in a very simple civil ceremony, Pierre and Marie married... And they didn't exchange rings, and Marie (laughs) wore a dark blue outfit that she said she could later use as, like, a lab Mm -hmm. garment. All of her outfit choices are whether or not she could then wear it in the lab. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. (sighs) And their their subsequent honeymoon was a tour of France on bicycles that they had bought as their wedding gift. That sounds fun. Which I thought was adorable. Yeah, that sounds... That does... See, they're doing yeah, other they're things. Not, their honeymoon Bicycling. isn't like, oh, let's go stare at radioactive elements all day. <laughs> Give uh-huh. ourselves no. freaking. Who who did we talk about? Who's, uh, was it the crafts and their yeah, like, honeymoon was, was just volcanoes. looking at volcanoes? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. If I'm thinking like who's crazier, both of these couples basically died because of their research. <laughs> Yes. Well, no, yeah. that's not why Pierre died, but he was very sick. So, <laughs> anyway, sorry. Yes, he was. Yeah, I don't think he was gonna. He wasn't long for this world, but yes. <laughs> no, he was not. Anyway. So, after they married, Marie continued to conduct her research on the magnetic properties of steel at the Municipal School of Industrial Physics and Chemistry, mm-hmm. where Pierre right. worked, um, with permission from the director of that school. And she didn't receive any funding. She was just allowed to use some lab space. But she did receive complimentary steel samples. Oh, oh she no. was paid with steel samples. <laughs> she was given some uh-huh. steel samples, but not even from the school, from other, like, metal wow, firms. Okay. Metal- metallurgical That's firms. That's really nuts. But she, she was paid by the Society for the Encouragement of National Industry, who had kind of asked her to do this project. Okay. So she finished her research and received payment from them in the summer of 1897. And that's a French company or like a society? I guess so. It didn't say. 
But yeah. I would think so. And with this money, she paid back the scholarship she had received during her master's, which wasn't actually something expected, but she said that she wanted more Polish students to be able to get an education. So she wanted to kind of put more money mm -hmm. back in to that right. scholarship. Which is very sweet, considering she, like, never got paid really much. I know. She's a pretty... Um... She doesn't have a lot of money to then move to yeah, give a lot of that money Yeah, they must have lived back. a very simple life. I mean, I think she wore, like, the same yes, thing every I day. Yeah, it's really... Yep. I mean, what's the word for that? Like, not... We can cut this out. A heretic. I guess that's a bad word. I don't... I'm not going to call it that. <laughs> I don't think heretic is... No, that's not uh, the word I'm thinking of. It's not heretic. It's like, uh, uh, this is all like, how do I simplify my life? Never mind. I'll look it up later. Doesn't matter. Okay, sorry. <laughs> no worries. Mm -hmm. Anyways. Okay, so after she finished this research, uh, Marie had their first child named Irene, and she was delivered by Pierre's father. And from here on, Marie Curie really took apparently detailed records of her daughter's development Whoa. like she would some type of experimental work. Like, oh, you're growing very nicely I never today. I that. Probably not. <laughs> you're growing nicely yeah. today. <laughs> you're growing very nicely today. So shortly after Irene's birth, Pierre's mother right. died. And so Pierre's father moved in with them and acted as a babysitter for Irene, wow. which really allowed Marie, who was in charge of Irene's care, to continue to work in the lab and to conduct science. And that must be so unique to that time. A grandfather wanting to care for grandkids. I mean, I, I've never really heard of that as a norm, a social norm of any kind. Yeah, I don't know. I feel like it happens. Yeah, I'm sure it happens. He's retired. He's, you know, just chilling. Yeah, that's true. That's true. <laughs> Anyways. <laughs> so, as it inevitably goes with children, uh, the Curie's lives got really, really right. busy. And they were trying to, they were attempting to balance family life with work life. Successfully, yeah. I don't know, maybe. And at this time, Marie was determined, was trying to determine what her dissertation would be about. Can you imagine having a kid and you're trying to figure out what your dissertation is I couldn't about. even figure it out without kids or any responsibilities. <laughs> I know. It took me like four <laughs> years to figure out when I had no, uh, yeah. no excuse. By the time I was defending, I'm like, okay, I guess this is what my thesis is about. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yes. still just deciding. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Well, I things were different then. And no. <laughs> Yes. Yes, it's true. So how did Marie decide what to study for her dissertation? It's a, a tough <laughs> question. But around this time, there was kind of two discoveries that were occurring that had shaped her choice that she would later mm -hmm. make. So first, in December 1895, the German physicist Wilhelm Röntgen uh, discovered a type of ray that could travel through flesh and yield photographs of bones within a living person. These rays were called X-rays, and the X denoted the fact that they didn't really understand <laughs> them. And then I guess we just oh, kept Oh, I that. never knew that. Yeah. So we still don't understand X-rays, no. 
I think I, we do. I think we've got to understand. I think I think we do. I think it just was at that point. They were also called Rontgen right, rays. Right, I've heard that too. But it's harder to Yeah, pronounce. x-rays is easier. Man, I always mm-hmm. thought there was something about them that made a cross or something. And that's why they were named that. No, I yeah. don't think so. No, I believe you. <laughs> Thank you. Great. I believe you. <laughs> <laughs> so this work uh, and this discovery of these x-rays would lead Röntgen to become the first Nobel laureate in physics in 1901. Wow. And only a few months after the discovery of x-rays, there was another big discovery that Marie was really interested in. So the French physicist Henry Becquerel mm-hmm. stumbled upon the puzzled puzzling finding that uranium compounds which is you know any mixture of elements that contain Mm -hmm. uranium emitted rays that would fog a photographic plate even when kept in the dark which meant that they weren't simply reflecting rays but were actually producing there was some production or um emittance of radiation or rays coming from the uranium that was causing this fog Like material. And nobody had ever really seen right. this before. There's like material coming yes. off of it, right? It's not like a light ray yeah, there's, or something. There's... Yeah. No. Uh, well, actually, yes. Oh, it is a light ray? But we'll get to that. Well, okay, we'll get okay. to that. Sorry. Sorry to confuse everybody. <laughs> no, 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 you're good. Okay. You're good. You're good. So at this time, most physicists... Physicists were focused on these x-rays, ooh, ah, x-rays. <laughs> Considerably less people were interested in the rays emitted by uranium okay. for whatever reason. But these ignored uranium rays really appealed to Marie. Mm-hmm. And since there was almost no work on them, she was able to start working on them in the lab pretty much right away without having to do a lot of background nice. work. It was yeah, so new. Okay. And so the director of the Paris Municipal School, where Pierre worked, permitted her to conduct this research in a crowded, damp storeroom. Oh, so permitted? Where her lab, her quote, lab was. Like, you need permission to do that? And then just like, uh, yeah, we'll <laughs> allow you. Yes, you can use this dark closet. Oh, so generous. Uh, so generous. So 15 years earlier, Pierre and his brother had invented this uh, elect- electrometer or electrometer mm-hmm. that could measure extremely faint electrical mm-hmm. currents. Okay. So now Marie used these electrometers to measure faint electrical currents that were passing through oh. the air caused by uranium rays. So their uranium rays were going through the air and then causing these faint electrical currents, and Marie could measure these electrical currents using this machine that Pierre and his brother had made years That's before. so weird. <laughs> However, because the storeroom fluctuated wildly right. in temperature and was extremely damp, um, this caused her currents to, like, dissipate more than they would in oh dry my air. gosh. And so she had to be even more thorough with her measurements, but was still able to get these complete reproducible measurements in this dirty, wet Ew. storeroom. There's like mold growing everywhere. <laughs> Probably. She's like, what kind of electricity does this fungus have? <laughs> She's just measuring. <laughs> so 
in this drafty storeroom, after extensive experiments, Marie was able to confirm Becquerel's observation that uranium, no matter the form it was in, whether it be like solid, pure, or Mm -hmm. compound, or wet, or exposed to light or heat, uh, no matter kind of what form it was in, it was constantly producing these rays. okay. So it's not like, yeah, it's not like something heats it up and it's like melting, you know, or like letting off a gas or something just from, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's not in just one form. It's not like something else is producing rays Mm -hmm. that their uranium is soaking in or emitting back. So she investigated the amount of rays emitted by different uranium compounds and confirmed another conclusion that Becquerel had, which was minerals with a higher proportion of uranium were emitting more intense rays. So it's definitely something about the uranium. Marie then went further and went beyond kind of Becquerel's work in forming a crucial hypothesis about uranium Mm. rays. She hypothesized that the emission of rays by uranium compounds could be some atomic property of the element uranium. So it was something intrinsic to uranium Mm. um, and that the very structure of uranium's atoms were causing this radiation. And this was a revolutionary hypothesis that shifted scientific understanding of atoms because at the time, scientists regarded the atom as kind of the most elemental particle. So the idea that there was something about uranium that was from like the atom scale that was emitting suggested that there were there was something below atoms. Yeah, okay. Like atoms were composed of something. At this time, scientists regarded the atom as, like, this most elemental particle. Um, Well, some scientists had discovered the electron, which began to dismantle this Mm -hmm. idea of Mm -hmm. atom being the most elemental particle. But the inner structures of atoms, nor the kind of energy potential stored in atoms, had begun to be grasped at this time. Right. So even Marie and Pierre weren't certain that the atoms of uranium were actually radiating energy themselves, but that kind of seemed like the most plausible explanation. But other things that could be happening was that perhaps, you know, perhaps radiation was coming from elsewhere, but instead some energy source like cosmic rays could only be absorbed and radiated back by uranium. So maybe it was, Mm, there's some intrinsic property of uranium that is allowing rays to be kind of absorbed and radiated back rather than the uranium is directly producing these rays. So that w- it wasn't known whether uranium was actually producing rays kind of spontaneously. Yeah. yeah, that makes sense. So Marie set to work to determine if something intrinsic about uranium atoms, atoms was causing this radiation. So first she tested all of the known elements to see if other elements or minerals could cause air to conduct electricity better. And her research revealed that thorium compounds, so... Compounds that ha- contain thorium also could emit these rays. And so it wasn't just uranium. Right, yeah. And, but the emission of these rays from thorium also seemed to be intrinsic to th- uh, thorium atoms, the same as uranium. So it was something about both uranium and thorium mm. intrinsically. Right. So it's not something, it's not like something else is affecting both of them, but each of them has a 
has like some property that's having making them emit these rays. Yes, yeah. Exactly. And so to describe the behavior of these two elements, Marie Curie invented the word radioactivity. I know. That's insane. Fun fact. She invented like a whole term that we use all the time now and it's like prevalent yeah. in all of our lives. <laughs> yep. Yeah, she's a genius anyway. Marie had also discovered that two uranium ores, so ores are just naturally occurring mixtures of elements, they were much more radioactive than pure uranium. And she believed that this would be could be due to yet undiscovered radioactive elements. Mm, right, okay. So within the mixture, it wasn't just uranium, but there was some other radioactive element that was causing these, like, really strong... Uh, radioactivity and then she probably had like pure uranium which was different right like would emit different activity Mm -hmm. yeah yeah so pierre when she kind of discovered this pierre was supremely interested in her work and began working alongside her at this time Mm -hmm. putting aside his own research on crystals to help her find these potentially elusive which is crazy because so many people say that she hopped on to what he was doing Yeah, And, like, that's a huge myth. (laughs) Yes. Not that he didn't contribute anything, but, I mean, he made that whole machine that she was using. But even still, like, Mm -hmm. they both worked on this together. I think it's pretty clear. (laughs) Yeah. No, it was a partnership. And she Mm -hmm. started it, and then he came on, and then they collaborated. exactly. (sighs) But, anyways, (laughs) people will always say that the woman just like yeah jumped on if they can all right so now they're looking pierre and marie are both looking for these elusive elements and these highly radioactive ores were composed of up to 30 different elements so it was really hard to try to tease them all apart So they used these new methods of chemical analysis along with kind of standard procedures to slowly separate the elements within the ore For instance, they might add, you know, like Mm -hmm. acid that would dissolve one element but keep the rest still in solid form so they could get rid of one of these elements. Um, They could then see if the radiation was coming from the dissolved element or from the ore. Right. Okay. and And the remaining elements in the ore. And they could keep slowly teasing apart this until they could figure out what component was radioactive. And so using this... Pierre's electrometer, they found that two fractions of this ore were strongly radioactive. One was mostly bismuth, Mm -hmm. and the other was mostly barium. And they concluded in 1898 that the fraction containing bismuth contained a new element that acted like bismuth but was radioactive, Mm. which they named polonium in honor of Marie's Polish home country. And their next publication similarly concluded that the barium portion contained a new element that was radioactive that was similar to um, – that acted similarly to barium. And so they called that radium after the word yeah. ray. Since you can't just add elements to the periodic table willy-nilly, <laughs> Marie set out to isolate these elements from the bismuth and barium fractions to, you know, actually figure out what these – elements mm-hmm. looked like and to make sure that they were new yep. elements so the dank, the dank. <laughs> municipal storeroom was not going to cut it for this work 
so they the Curies then move to an abandoned shed across the school courtyard, <laughs> which was better, I guess, but was also poorly ventilated. Oh my God. They're just like in these dark rooms with radiation <laughs> seeping into all yes, their pores. Yes, it's like the worst possible. Yeah. Oh my yes, gosh. it's the worst possible situation. And they were sick all the time, right? And they would always tell people it's just because of their the working conditions with like these damp, dark storerooms, which could possibly be mm-hmm. true. But yeah, it's really nuts. <laughs> yeah, no, it's probably the radiation. <laughs> it's probably the radiation. Yeah. yeah. So with tremendous difficulty, Murray succeeded in isolating the radium from the bar- the barium mm-hmm. fraction. And in order to do this, she had to deal with huge quantities of this thing called pitch right. blend ore, which was the ore that had been really radioactive that they had kind of disentangled, which was provided to her by the Austrian government. And so they gave her this huge amount of this ore wow. to work with to try to get radium mm-hmm. extracted. And so after discovering how to isolate this radium... Uh, the Central Chemical Products Company, who sold Pierre's scientific instruments like the electrometer, um, they adapted these isolating techniques that Marie and Pierre had had created to work on an industrial scale to provide the Curies with high concentrations of radium and polonium. Wow. And then the company would take a share of the radium for its own. Oh. So that was kind of the and deal. radium was really ex- – oh, wait. They don't – they didn't have a price for it yet because didn't, they didn't even know it existed yet, really. Not yet. But it was yeah. – yeah. But it ended up being a good investment yes. for this company because that ended up being used for so yeah. much medical mm-hmm. stuff. So during the International Physics Conference in – Paris in 1900, the Curies presented a curious finding. So they found that the material containing radium spontaneously emitted light, i.e. it glowed. (laughs) And Marie said, quote, one of our joys was to go into our workroom at night. The glowing tubes looked like faint fairy lights. (laughs) The glowing tubes of death. (laughs) Whimsical. Glowing tubes of death. So nice to look at. So bad. And so all of these processes that the Curies used to isolate radium were published without patents because they didn't have the time or money to register for patents. And they didn't see any reason to believe that radium would become a big money maker. Yeah. And like they weren't that concerned with money, right? Just as people. No, but I think in retrospect, because they then had to keep asking for money to right. get their mm-hmm. labs funded. Yeah. It would have been nice to <laughs> having it would have been nice to fund yeah. that research. I think that was what they would have mm-hmm. been interested in. And around this time Pierre's work had shown that radium could cause tissue damage in living organisms and so it was quickly starting to be used to fight cancers and other illnesses. Uh, and became like a huge medical wonder mm-hmm. tool, I guess. And in 1904, a French industrialist named Armet de Lis- 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 <laughs> de Lisle? I don't know. Would collab <laughs> Lyle, maybe Lyle, 
uh, would collaborate with the Curies to produce radium for medical purposes as well as to provide it for the Curies research. Mm -hmm. And although some people were getting wealthy on the Curies discoveries, the Curies certainly were not. Uh, with a child and parent to support the expensive research and expensive research to conduct, Pierre sought a better paying job. But he found I'm not sure why this was. He found very little welcome at French universities. Um, they just weren't going to hire him and weren't going to give him more money, weren't going to give him a lab. And so it was only after the University of Geneva offered him a position that the French finally offered a job to Pierre. I think it had something to do with his non-traditional academic background, which I don't know what that Mm, means, but I read that somewhere, like for some other aspect Mm -hmm. of his career. I don't know, but um, I mean, I don't know what that means, though. (laughs) So like, I guess like, you know, he didn't go for a PhD. He Apply, you know, it was just something about him was different for some reason. So I don't know. We'll never know. But yeah, so eventually the French gave like a counter offer and offered him a chair of the physics program at the Mm -hmm. Sorbonne, but it didn't have any lab space associated with it. And so the Curies continued to work in the (laughs) shed at the place he used to work. So crazy. Uh, and at this time, for some reason, both of their healths were starting to deteriorate. Oh, I wonder why. <laughs> Pierre had severe attacks of pain yeah. while Marie lost 20 pounds during her dissertation. Oh, my gosh. And both of them had permanent damage to their fingertips <gasps> from touching all of these radioactive materials. Oh, my gosh. I did not read about that. and But I did uh-huh. read that they – I think, like, all of their friends and family were – Honestly, like, I'm pretty sure it's this (laughs) materials you're working with. And they were just so obsessed Uh that they were in complete denial (sighs) that radiation could cause health problems. Wow. That's pretty intense. I mean, they were determined. Mm -hmm. But also he knew that radiation caused tissue damage. Oh, yeah. So, like. They were just in complete denial, I think. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they knew that. That comes into play later, too. Anyway, that's weird. Uh-huh. Mm. Yeah. Marie became the first woman to be appointed as lecturer at France's foremost teacher's training institute mm-hmm. for women during this time. And so she was also the first lecturer to include lab work into the physics curriculum there. And so she was finally starting to get paid. Yes. Even though it wasn't really for her science, she was starting to get paid. <laughs> yeah. Which you gotta eat. Girls gotta eat. We've all gotta eat. She needs a girl's dinner. gotta eat. Oh, <laughs> girls gotta eat. I want yeah. food. Soon. Soon. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So while Marie had been awarded three awards by the French Academy of Sciences, they denied membership to Pierre in 1902. I mean, they didn't there was no way she was going to be in the French Academy of Sciences, but they would they wouldn't let him in. Oh wait, I thought they did. Um, I don't know why I thought they let him in. I don't think I read that anywhere. I just I think they do. Oh, they do okay, later. Okay. The academy is but dramatic. Let's just say that. Yes. Yes. Although the French wouldn't let them in. They were invited in 1903 to London as guests of the Royal Institution, who were all about them. However, Marie was not allowed to lecture because she was a woman. Right. Okay. 
And so Pierre gave a lecture about their combined work. And during this weekend, Pierre was in such bad health that he couldn't dress himself because his fingers were all covered in sores from the radiation. (laughs) That's messed up. You can you yes. he can't even dress himself. Like oh no. boy. Yes. <laughs> so then in June of nineteen oh three, Marie defended her dissertation thesis. And her sister Bronya came all the way back from Poland uh for the occasion, which was the occasion of the first woman to receive a doctorate in France. Wow. And professors who reviewed her doctoral thesis, which was about radiation, obviously, Mm -hmm. declared that it was the greatest single contribution to science ever (laughs) written. They're not wrong. I mean... No one has said that about my dissertation. (laughs) Nor mine. (laughs) Nor will they, nor should they. (sighs) But that's... Yeah, that's pretty remarkable. Yeah, I'm glad that it wasn't... I mean, I don't know if she had a hard time even being allowed to, like, get a PhD or anything. You know, I didn't really read that much mm-hmm. about that. Yeah, I couldn't I couldn't find much about that. I mean, like, she had a really hard time having anybody fund her yeah. or give her a job. <laughs> but in terms of the struggle to get a PhD, that's kind of unclear. I mean, I, it might say more. I didn't read any of... She has a couple... Like autobiographies. Mm. Okay. But I didn't get in mm. that deep. Yeah. I mean, we can't. So <laughs> it's just we not just time. Can't. I, got a, <laughs> I got a day job, man. I got a day job and I have dog Veronica Mars to watch. So. Oh, yeah. Veronica Mars is awesome. Oh, it's so good. So despite this success and her writing, you know, the greatest single contribution to science mm-hmm, ever written. Mm-hmm. The summer was not really a joyful summer. Marie suffered a miscarriage at this time. Oh. Her sister, her sister's child, so Branya's child, died of meningitis. Oh my gosh. And Pierre's health was getting right. much worse. Later on in 1903, 1903 was a big yeah. year. Mm-hmm. The French Academy of Sciences nominated Henry... Becquerel and Pierre Curie for the Nobel Prize in Physics for their work on uranium and radiation. However, they did not nominate Marie Curie. Right. However, one of the members of the nominating committee, who was a Swedish mathematician named Magnus Gusta Mittagleffler, he was an advocate for women scientists and wrote Pierre explicitly to inform him about the situation that the French Academy of Sciences were going to nominate Pierre, but not Marie. And so Pierre replied and said that it would be a travesty if the Nobel Prize on radioactivity did not acknowledge Marie's pivotal work. And so after some strings were pulled and this, you know, very blunt letter was sent by Pierre, Marie Curie was actually finally nominated as well for the Nobel Prize. I know. I mean, it's just so great that he stood up for her and... Yeah. Yep. I mean, it changed both of their lives, I think. I, but, yeah. Mm-hmm. It, during this time, and probably still now, the, like, women were doing great science. They were just being ignored for right. it. And, unfortunately, it's only after men stand up and actually, you know, 
stand up for those women and their contributions, do we see women getting their due credit? Yeah. I mean, it's good, but it's also sad that that's the only, only when a man stands up for you or can, at that point, Does anybody you get credit for the awesome it? shit that you did yeah. yourself. That's really yes. insane. But it's weird because people Anyways. knew the work was good. Like, they were nominating Pierre for it. But it's weird that they just... Yeah, they just assumed that yeah, it was Pierre. her contributions or just the fact that she mm-hmm. was there they're just like yeah she wasn't really there yep <laughs> she didn't really eh. do this yeah yeah exactly <sighs> but in 1903 the nobel prize in physics was awarded to both pierre and marie yeah. curie and henry becquerel for quote their joint researches on the radiation phenomena discovered by professor henry right. becquerel yeah so she yeah. got it. She's the first woman to receive a Nobel Prize. It was awesome. It was yeah. well-deserved. Woo! Woo! <laughs> woo! Woo, woo, woo! So to hear about Marie's life after her first Nobel Prize, including an infamous scandal, a tragic death, and a lifetime of groundbreaking research, tune in to part two of this two-part series on the incredible life of Marie Curie. Thanks, everyone, for sticking with us for these 50 first episodes, and we hope to see you for 50 more. And as always, go stimulate yourself. We'll see you next week for part two.